Welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. Okay, we're getting very close to the end of the story of John, Paul, George, and Ringo here. So make sure to follow Rock Band's podcast on Instagram for some important updates on season two soon. As you've noticed, since this is sort of halfway between season one and season two, the episodes are longer and I'm not uploading every week. The format's a bit different. Um, so I'm going to go back to the weekly cycle once I get to season two, but for now I'm enjoying the summer. So I say this like literally every week, but this is truly one of my favorite corners of rock and roll history. This is George Harrison's Dark Horse Days, Paul's band on the run, John Lennon's Lost Weekend. I can't wait. So let's get to it. Don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Okay, now I bring you Solo Beatles Part 4. Since the Beatles broke up, Paul was really struggling to get his career back on track. Since 1970, Paul's music had yet to be really well-received in the press, unlike the music of his other three bandmates. This isn't for lack of trying, either. Paul had released more music than all of the three ex-Beatles, He had two number one singles, Uncle Albert and My Love, and most of his albums charted well. Paul had even formed another band, Wings, and in 1972, he was the only Beatle to go on tour, a pretty major tour at that in Europe in 1972. Still, fans and critics alike felt like something about his music just wasn't living up to what Paul was capable of doing. His albums were fine, but they were kind of filled with filler tracks or forgettable music. Even Paul knew that something wasn't right with him musically. Linda McCartney remembers Paul's state of mind in 1973 when she said, quote, Paul thought, I've got to do it. Either I give up and cut my throat or I get my magic back, unquote. Paul was determined to turn his bad slump around. Luckily, things finally started to change in 1973, over three years after the Beatles ceased to exist as a band. Paul's last studio album, Red Rose Speedway, was kind of more of the same underwhelming music with a hit single, but around this period, Paul also wrote one of the best songs of his career. In 1972, Paul read Ian Fleming's James Bond novel, Live and Let Die. He liked the book so much that he finished it in a weekend. Somehow, Paul agreed to write the theme song for the new Bond film based on this novel, so he wrote this famous song, Live and Let Die. Paul recorded the song in the fall of 1972, and he was, for the first time since 1969, reunited with George Martin, the legendary Beatles producer, and one of the few people in Paul's professional life that Paul let guide him musically. George Martin was producing the soundtrack for the new Bond movie. The result was a really epic song with booming horns and a bold, innovative sound before breaking into this kind of bouncy reggae section. The song was released in the spring of 1973, and it was a huge hit in the U.S. and the U.K., almost scoring McCartney his third number one, but it peaked at number two. The song, though, was a critical success, and McCartney was finally praised for his innovative musical approach and actually pushing the boundaries in some way and making something that was really interesting and valuable in the world of pop music. 
Live and Let Die showed fans that Paul was finally moving in the right direction and gave fans the hope that he was going to start making really good music again. In the summer of 1973, Paul wanted to get started on his next Wings album. There was a lot of pressure on Paul to make a really high-quality album, as we know, so Paul began searching for inspiration. He decided that what would help him and Wings is if they recorded the album in an exotic location. Paul had recently found out that EMI had a bunch of locations abroad in places like Brazil, China, India, Nigeria, so he decided to book some studio time in Lagos, Nigeria in the fall of 1973. And this is where Paul McCartney and Wings would go on to record Band on the Run, which is Paul's most celebrated solo album. Once Paul got it in his head that he was going to go to Africa, he just wanted to get there. So he invited Wings members Denny Lane and Denny Sewell, as well as the recently acquired lead guitar player Henry McCullough, to begin working on demos in Scotland so they could make their trip to Nigeria as soon as possible. Wings, who felt like they were finally hitting their stride as a rock and roll band, were not very enthusiastic about the whole recording in Africa thing. Mainly because all three members of Wings felt like Paul wasn't paying them nearly enough, and they weren't getting the recognition that they deserved. They were still only making like 70 pounds a week, which was next to nothing, considering they were working with one of the richest and most successful performers in the world. Not only this, but the new guitar player, Henry McCullough, got really fed up with Paul's personality. Paul, similar to the way he treated George Harrison, wasn't satisfied with McCullough's playing a lot of the time, and he kept micromanaging him and telling him what to play critiquing his playing or playing some parts himself. A few days before the band was set to leave for Nigeria, Henry McCullough got fed up and quit the band. McCullough was clearly resentful about the financial situation, and he said about leaving Wings, quote, I just had to move. If I hadn't have moved at that time, I think eventually I may have been sacked. It's all very well getting into a bloody Learjet and flying off to Lagos, but at the end of the day, when you get home, you still have to eat, unquote. Paul acted like he wasn't too bothered by McCullough's departure. He felt that the guitar work could be handled by himself and Denny Lane. But as the rehearsals went on, a lot of tension started to build between Paul and drummer Denny Sewell. Sewell was also really unhappy with his pay situation, and he was really dragging his feet on the whole recording in Nigeria thing. He also felt that the band wasn't really in good shape after the departure of their lead guitar player, Henry McCullough, and he wanted to postpone the trip so that him and Denny Lane could find another guitar player. Sewell said, quote, I said, listen, can't we just postpone this trip and break in a new guitar player, teach him Henry's parts, teach him the songs, so we can go into this project and play it as a band, kind of live, and then embellish it? Paul said, no, 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 we're just going to continue. EMI have set up a studio for us. We'll do it like Ram. It'll be overdub, but we'll make it good. So I thought, I don't want to do that again. We had just spent all this time and effort to become a real rock and roll band, and it was becoming very good. So between Henry leaving and the financial situation, I just took it upon myself to say, that's it, unquote. Denny Sewell quit Wings just days before they were set out to fly down to Nigeria to begin band on the run. Paul was furious, but stubborn as he was, he had no intention of changing his plans or tweaking his vision. So at the end of August 1973, Paul... Linda, Denny Lane, and the former Beatle engineer Jeff Emmerich flew down to Lagos, Nigeria to begin recording what would become Paul's most successful solo album. The addition of Jeff Emmerich to the team was pretty out of the blue. By this point, Paul despised Apple Corps and refused to work with the traditional Apple staff. 
Emmerich, as it happened, worked for Apple because he was hired there by Paul in 1969. However, Emmerich quit in 1973 and went on to work with George Martin at his new studio, AIR. And once he cut ties with Apple, Paul pretty much immediately called him because he was so eager to work with his favorite engineer from the Beatle days. When Wings arrived in Nigeria, though, things were not as glamorous as Paul thought they would be. They rented a few nice villas in the rich part of Lagos. However, they naively thought that they would be in a tropical paradise, recording, then drinking rum on the beach all day. What they found was Nigeria was a country with some serious problems, ranging from political instability, disease, and violence. It was also oppressively hot and crawling with bugs, lizards, and snakes, which creeped pretty much everyone out. And the tropical weather was also not as advertised. Wings got to Lagos during monsoon season, so much of the time spent in Lagos was under pouring rain. Just before Wings started recording Band on the Run, it was made known to Paul just how dangerous of an environment he was in. One night, Paul and Linda were walking home from dinner when they were robbed at knife point by some Nigerians. Paul gave the robbers his watch and his wallet and all the other valuables he had as Linda screamed and begged them not to hurt her husband. Paul also handed over his bag, which was full of all the demos and notes for Band on the Run, which he was going to use to record the album. Paul was really lucky to live. I mean, given the state of law enforcement uh, in Nigeria at the time, there was no real reason why he wasn't killed. While Paul was lucky to escape with his life, all of his ideas for the album were gone, and he was going to have to start from scratch. When Paul arrived to the studio, he had to remember all of the songs and rewrite the parts that he couldn't remember in the studio. Paul was a gifted songwriter, so this wasn't too unreasonable of a task. And Paul even later said that this may have made the songs even stronger. The studio in Lagos wasn't much to write home about either. It was small, a bit run down, with loud, poorly functioning air conditioning, which could mean brutal heat during the day because they couldn't have that on during recording. However, EMI studios were generally pretty uniform, so Paul, Denny, Linda, and Jeff Emmerich made do with what they had. So in September, they got working on Band on the Run, and the first songs that they recorded were the title track, Band on the Run, Mamunia, and Mrs. Vanderbilt. I think the title track, Ban on the Run, is arguably the best song on the record. Lyrically, it's a bit autobiographical. Wings was on an adventure in Nigeria and found themselves trying to survive in a strange land. It had a bunch of meanings, though. Paul said that he was talking about drug busts and the feeling that bands like the Beatles and the Stones had about always running away from the cops because they were easy busts. Paul also said that some of the song, like the line, If We Ever Get Out of Here, was inspired by the constant Beatle lawsuits and meetings. Uh, It was actually a George Harrison quote. Musically, it features some really impressive lead guitar by Paul, and the song is broken up into sections. There's some heavily orchestrated and tense parts. Others are just like electric guitar-driven rock and roll. Uh, And then my favorite part of the song, and what I think most people would consider to be the chorus, is the sort of happy country rock part. Another standout is the side one closer, Let Me Roll It, which features one of my favorite electric guitar riffs ever, played by Paul. The song is built around this hard-hitting riff, but it's so soulful and dreamy. Critics at the time said that Paul's vocal in the song, which is outstanding, was an imitation of John Lennon's vocal style, specifically the use of the tape echo, but Paul says that was only a coincidence. The main lyric, however, Let Me Roll It, is actually inspired from a line in George Harrison's song, I'd Have You Anytime, or Let It Roll, it's kind of unclear which one. 
Paul wasn't the only rock star in Africa at the time. During recording of Band on the Run, Paul met up with the renowned drummer Ginger Baker. Ginger was the drummer for Cream, of course, and was highly respected, but also probably one of the most unusual characters in the history of rock and roll, which maybe we'll get into one day on this podcast. But Ginger loved Africa and the music and sounds and rhythms on the continent, and was apparently mad at his old buddy Paul McCartney that he was at EMI Studios in Lagos, because Ginger had his own studio in Lagos. Paul decided to make Ginger happy, so he recorded one of his songs at Ginger's studio, which would end up being Picasso's last words, Drink to Me. This is probably the most unusual song on the album, and it's kind of supposed to be that way. It's supposed to sound like a Picasso painting, because the great Spanish painter had died in 1973. At a dinner party, Paul was asked by Dustin Hoffman to write a song about Picasso on the spot, to prove if Paul really was that good of a songwriter. Another standout track on Band on the Run is the final song of the album, 1985. 1985 is this really intense, dark, piano-driven song, and Paul really kills it on the vocal. Musically, Band on the Run as an album is excellent. Paul and Denny had a great creative relationship during this period, which would really only improve until Wings disbanded. Paul was obviously the creative force in the relationship. Uh, Denny wasn't the best singer, and of course, he wasn't in the same league as Paul as a composer, but Denny was a solid musician with some great ideas, and he was a pretty good songwriter, too. He was also okay with Paul's domineering streak, so their power dynamic really worked well. Paul also respected that Denny was probably a stronger guitar player than himself, and how Denny got along really well with Linda and the kids and just loved to have a good time. Paul was always looking for a partner, and he wanted Denny to take on more of a songwriting burden. So the pair began to write a lot more songs together after Band on the Run, and even co-wrote No Words, which was sung by Lane and included on the album. The recording of this album was still a bit precarious, though. There was no band in the studio. They had to record the backing tracks, usually with Paul on drums and Denny playing rhythm guitar. And they would fill in vocals and lead parts and bass. Paul would kind of go back to that method of playing the bass at the end of the song. Paul even plays the drum part on Band on the Run, which to me is astounding. The drumming sounds totally professional, as if they were playing live in the studio with a session drummer. After a few months of playing in the intense heat, pouring rain of Nigeria, Wings headed back up to London to finish the album. They left Africa behind, but the feeling they had in Africa was really helpful. They were really able to enjoy their time, and though it was pretty rough and kind of scary at times, they did develop this camaraderie and feeling of commiseration, especially between Denny and Paul, which I think was really helpful in the studio for the years to come. Back in London, Wings recorded another contender for the best song slot on band on the run, Jet. Jet is a song inspired by a Labrador puppy that the McCartneys adopted. Some of the lyrics are nonsensical, but that was very much Paul's style. I especially love the line, I thought the only lonely place was on the moon. Jet is full of awesome musical parts, a great bass line, really cool guitar, great brass, a nice little Moog solo. It's again a song that mixes elements like classical, hard rock, synth pop, and even reggae. Uh, it's both a really intense song and one of the more fun, lighthearted songs, and easily one of Paul McCartney's best songs. Band on the Run was definitely a special album, but there was a lot of worrying in the run-up to the release at the end of 1973. Paul McCartney was not exactly in style. In fact, critics loved to hate him. 
But in December of 1973, Band on the Run was released and it was an enormous success. It topped the charts in the UK and the USA, and Jet and Band on the Run were both huge commercial hit singles. The album even came back to the number one position after the release of the second single in the summer of 1974. Critics were much happier with this album, and it seemed like Paul was finally able to compete with his former bandmates. Even John Lennon was impressed with the album, saying, quote, Band on the Run is a great album, unquote. After three years of struggling to get the respect that he once had for his music, Paul McCartney finally showed people what he was capable of. Band on the Run is a great album. It's really experimental. It has elements of progressive rock in it, reggae, country, hard rock and roll but it endured as a timeless classic. Paul would continue his success with huge stadium tours starting in the 1970s, and no longer had the post-Beatle chip on his shoulder. And from this point on, he would prove himself to be one of the most successful solo acts in the history of pop music. One thing we can't say about John Lennon is that his career always stayed the same. His music changed along with his personality, and as you'll remember, John went through some pretty drastic personality changes through the years. He started off as that cute pop star, and then he went to the Dylan-esque stoner, then the trippy acid head, then he became the meditating spiritual seeker, to an avant-garde provocateur, an angry therapy patient, and then a full-blown political activist. All of these changes are on display in his music, album by album. It's like there's a new John Lennon composing the songs every year. In a lot of ways, that's what we love about John. He is so convinced of himself that he is the artist that he says he is in that moment. But you know the next album he'll be singing a different tune. In 1973 to 1974, John lost a lot of this certainty and maybe even some of his artistic passion. That didn't stop him from making some of his best music, though. In 1973, John was in a kind of rut creatively. He had the unsuccessful Sometime in New York City the year prior, uh, but between the very much ongoing fight for his visa and the tiring of always being an activist, John wasn't feeling the same fire and passion that he was in the years prior. John and his wife Yoko Ono also began to experience some pretty serious marital issues. They had, of course, uh, experienced several miscarriages, and they were on-again, off-again drug addicts to drugs like heroin, opium, methadone, and increasingly they used cocaine, and they didn't feel nearly as passionately for one another as they did in the early years of their relationship. Yoko even remembers a conversation she had with John at one point, quote, I said, look, John, it's getting a little bit like we're not passionate about each other. Are we just going to be one of those old conservative couples who are together just because we're married, unquote? John, who had been unfaithful to Yoko only once in their marriage, was also growing eager to sleep with other people, and Yoko was spending more and more time trying to become a charting pop star. So there was a bit of a feeling like they were getting in each other's ways personally and professionally. Yoko had released her first pop-ish album, the largely ignored Approximately Infinite Universe, in 1973, and was working on her follow-up, Feeling the Space, when John decided to simply put together a bunch of songs and try to make a solid pop album himself. 
The studio Ona was working at was in New York City, and John liked it and thought it would be a good time to make a record. Kind of like the old way of doing it. Since the Plastic Ono Band record, he had done pretty much all of his writing with Yoko, or he was trying to achieve some sort of higher artistic theme with his work. This time, uh, John, who had been experiencing kind of a writer's block, maybe just laziness, he hadn't sat down to just write a couple great songs in a while. John began writing new material and arranging old songs for his 1973 album, Mind Games. The opening track and lead single, Mind Games, is a spectacular song, by far one of Lennon's best. Mind Games started as a Beatles song, originally called Make Love, Not War, but it was never seriously recorded. Admittedly, there are subtleties in the lyrics that hark back to Lennon's activist and peace-loving days, like when he sings about, you know, peace on earth and I want you to make love, not war. It's an anthem of positivity, really, a lot less pessimistic than some of his earlier work. Overall, I hear Mind Games as being a song about Yoko. For example, when John sings Yes is the Answer, that's uh, John recalling climbing that ladder at Yoko Ono's art exhibit when they first met and seeing the word yes on the ceiling. I also love John's vocals on the song. They're so powerful that they really fit in well with that kind of wall of sound-esque production. I think this song is really cool because when you listen to it with headphones, you can really hear that there's this repetitive to the point of even being a mantric sort of musical theme here, you know, the same riff over and over again, the same melodies over and over again, while the bass and keyboards are adding more interesting uh, ideas and changing the musical uh, progression of the song. Despite John and Yoko's new marital problems that were creeping in, a lot of this album is made up of love songs that Lennon wrote for Yoko. Lennon sings, I was born just to get to you in Out the Blue, uh, one of my favorite songs on the album, and, and today, I love you more than yesterday in the song I Know I Know, another one of my faves. I think the riff in I Know I Know is top-notch, and I think it's a song he'd been holding on to for quite some time, since at least the Imagine Sessions, if I remember correctly. The album also gets rocking on songs like Tight Ass and Meet City. Overall, though, the album does not really live up to the opening track. Mind Games is by far the strongest song on the album. The album is solid, though, and I think it may even be underrated. There are some good songwriting kind of singer-songwriter songs on it. Great Guitar by David Spinoza, who also played for Paul on Ram. And I think John's singing might be at its best on this album. It's a little more laid back than his screaming and howling on previous album, which fits in with the vibe of the whole disc pretty well. However, a lot of Mind Games is kind of forgettable, even boring. The album actually reminds me of like a watered-down Imagine, which is kind of a common critique at the time. I mean, if you take the song Mind Games, the title track, and compare that to Imagine, the opening kind of best, most notable song on the album. Then you kind of fill in the blanks. Tight Ass is kind of like Crippled Inside. Asmussen, I'm Sorry, is kind of like a cheaper version of Jealous Guy. And the general mix of hard, angry rock and sensitive, vulnerable, acoustic-driven songs, it does kind of feel like a place Lennon has been before, but it's a lot better than sometime in New York City. John recorded the album quickly, and he produced it himself, choosing not to work with Phil Spector. The album was released in the fall of 1973, and the reviews were mixed. Some critics were appalled and felt that this was his worst work in years. Others were happy that Lennon made something a bit easier on the ears than the N-word-laden protest songs, but most critics were neither impressed nor disappointed, just kind of generally satisfied that John Lennon was moving in a more normal pop direction. 
had a good single, and it was listenable, and the lack of Yoko Ono was definitely welcomed by almost every critic. The cover, made by Lennon, shows a cutout of John on a grassy field, with Yoko Ono's profile parallel to the landscape looking like a mountain in the background. Mind Games was a solid hit, landing in the top 40 in the United States and the UK, and the album itself hit 13 in the UK charts and 9 in the US, putting Lennon firmly in George Harrison's tall shadow after Material World became his second number one album. Lennon himself wasn't all too thrilled with Mind Games, later stating, quote, The Mind Games single was fine, but there's just no energy to sustain through the album, and there's no clarity of vision. That cover says more than the record to me, unquote. In the fall of 1973, right around the time Mind Games was set to be released, John was starting to become pretty apathetic and bored in his life. John, always impatient and looking for a new obsession, was clearly pretty bored with his career and his marriage to Yoko. John was no longer obsessive or possessive like he was before, and Yoko, too bored of their routine, was also kind of looking for something new. Yoko was warming more to the idea that, at least unofficially, John and her should end their marriage. Yoko even suggested in October of 1973 that John go explore other people. And John, who was eager to take Yoko up on the offer, countered with an offer to leave his wife and her career in New York City and travel to Los Angeles, where, while he was promoting mind games, he could see some old friends and maybe even record some new songs. Yoko, quite surprisingly, encouraged John to go, indefinitely, to Los Angeles. However, in a move maybe to keep control of John or to make sure he didn't end up going crazy or killing himself on drugs, Yoko had the idea of getting the young Chinese-American Apple employee who worked closely with John and Yoko as an assistant on their latest albums to go with John to Los Angeles. John had always liked Mei Pang, and she was sort of seen by Yoko as a responsible and safe caretaker. Yoko remembers this decision, quote, I said to John, what about May? He said, oh no, not May. It was like, doth protest too much. So I went to May and said, look, I think you have to accompany John to LA. I have some things to do here, and I'm not a very good wife, you know. I didn't say do it or anything. It was just to be an assistant, to go there. But I knew what might happen, because John was never without anybody, unquote. May Pang was initially reluctant to go to L.A. with John. She, too, knew what to expect and didn't feel comfortable starting a relationship with her employer, who was married to her other employer. However, she sort of thought that John and Yoko's marriage wasn't really falling apart, and she was convinced that she would only be with John for a few weeks and he'd eventually come back to New York. So May Pang agreed to accompany the newly single John Lennon on what became his 18-month alcohol and drug-fueled bender, which would become known as his Lost Weekend. John Lennon said of his lost weekend, quote, I'd never been a bachelor since I was 20 or something, and I thought, whoopee, but it was god-awful, unquote. Whether or not John thought it was god-awful in the moment, his lost weekend certainly had a big impact on his creativity, his social life, his sobriety, and ultimately his career. When John and May Pang got to L.A., the two quickly began a romantic relationship. The press began to buzz about the ex-Beatle John Lennon walking around L.A. with another woman. John was relatively open about his separation with Ono, meaning he didn't keep it a secret. John said to the press in 1973, quote, Now that Yoko knows how to produce records and everything about it, I think the best thing I can do is to keep out of her hair. We're just playing life by ear, and that includes our careers. We occasionally take a bath together and occasionally separately, just how we feel at the time, unquote. 
However, one of John's assistants, Elliot Mintz, was working closely with John during his last weekend, and he said that he got the impression that John wasn't as sure if he had a future with Yoko as he had seemed to the press. Mintz said, quote, John said Yoko had kicked him out, and he didn't know when or even if they'd be getting back together, unquote. Now, things get a bit confusing because apparently John would rock back and forth between being devastated that Yoko sent him to L.A. and acting totally thrilled about his freedom and his new girlfriend, May Pang. Yoko was also never too far away, often talking with John on the phone and connecting with staff to make sure John wasn't killing himself or getting into too much trouble. Yoko or not, John started to get accustomed to his new life. He and May stayed at friends' houses until moving into Andrew Luke Aldham's house in Los Angeles and began hanging out with people like Keith Moon, Harry Nielsen, Elton John, and of course Ringo Starr, and these guys were a little crazier than your average rock star. John fit right in, pretty much immediately starting to drink and use drugs more than he ever had to keep up with his new buddies. John's time in Los Angeles also turned into a music-making opportunity for him. For a few years, John had been dealing with a plagiarism lawsuit over his use of the line, Here Come Old Flat Top in the Beatles song Come Together, which was lifted from Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me. As a result of the settlement, John agreed to record three old songs and donate the royalties to the owner of Chuck Berry's catalog. Partly motivated by his love for old rock and roll, and John wanting to get a leg up on the settlement, John decided to do something he'd been thinking about for years. He wanted to record an album of old covers, the songs that sort of inspired him to get into music in the first place. Just like that, John Lennon got started on his first Lost Weekend solo project, which he called Oldies and Moldies. John assembled a band made up of people like Jim Keltner on drums, Jesse Ed Davis, and Steve Cropper on guitar, Klaus Vorman on bass. To top it all off, John reunited with Phil Spector, the L.A. native, and instructed him to take full control of the production. No more co-producing, John just wanted to be the singer and the guitar player. The sessions were notorious for just the sheer amount of alcohol being consumed. John, who was never much of a binge drinker, was drinking more than he ever had, even more than he had in Hamburg. He would play pretty much every session with a bottle of vodka by his feet, and there would often be long, boozy dinners before the recording sessions even began. This wasn't helped by the only source of authority, Phil Spector, being a raging alcoholic, a person who couldn't really even get out of bed without a bottle of brandy. Some of the sessions were magnificent, though, but a lot of it was just crap, drunk, garbage, and John got drunker and drunker, he would begin to slur the lyrics, sing out of tune, forget his guitar parts, even fall asleep in the studio. The band was pretty loyal to John, all being musicians from that pool of ex-Beatles solo albums, were getting pretty sick and tired of showing up to an all-night bender instead of recording listenable music. John's behavior was also erratic, often throwing blackout tantrums, cursing out his band, even acting violently towards them, throwing bottles and punches. Other nights, he was calm, funny, and nice, and on his game musically, just like the normal John Lennon that everyone was used to. The band didn't know what version of John Lennon they would get from night to night. Eventually, the recording of Oldies and Moldies broke down to the point uh, of no return because Phil Spector just stopped showing up to the sessions, and John tried to take over a production, but Spector had most of the tapes, and a lot of what they did was simply unusable. John decided to shelf the project, and he would eventually revisit Oldies and Moldies in 1975. We'll talk about that next episode. However, the wild binge drinking and drug-fueled antics didn't stay in the studio. 
Jonna developed a star-studded friend group in Los Angeles made up of some of the biggest partiers of all time. John was spending a lot of time at Ringo's place, who had become a feature of Los Angeles. And Ringo was usually with the Who's Keith Moon, who obviously needs no introduction. Ringo also hung out with Alice Cooper and someone who became one of John's closest friends, singer-songwriter Harry Nilsson. The group started to hang out so much in 1974, they even started a drinking club called the Hollywood Vampires, which had a membership that included Mark Bolin, Joe Walsh, Bernie Taupin, John Belushi, and a bunch of others. John took binge drinking to the max, and he especially uh, enjoyed his time with Harry Nilsson. They would spend all their weekends going all over LA, getting into trouble, drinking until dawn. One night, John, May Pang, and Harry went to see the Smothers Brothers at the Troubadour. John and Harry got so drunk on Brandy Alexander's that John was kicked out of the club for obnoxiously heckling the band. When John was told to leave, he flipped a table and screamed, Do you know who I am? Which he says was a joke, but the whole thing looked very bad for the ex-Beatle. The incident, which was reported in the press with a photograph of John being escorted out of the nightclub, ended up being quite embarrassing for John, who sent a letter of apology to the Smothers Brothers the next day. A lot of 1974 was like this for John, who would be seen around Los Angeles with Nilsson, Keith Moon, Ringo, screaming, jamming, and just getting into trouble around the city. John and his friends' shenanigans continued when John was chosen to produce Harry Nilsson's upcoming album, Pussycats, which would feature another star-studded slate of musicians. The album quickly turned into another indulgent, alcohol-laden party, and John's production was no more laid back. The songs started to include giant brass sections, choirs. Some songs even had three drummers. The sessions were notable mainly for the reason that it was the first and last time, really, that John would be musically reunited with Paul McCartney. Paul and Linda dropped by Nielsen's studio sessions in the spring of 1974, and they were warmly greeted by John Lennon. John and Paul had recently spent the last, I don't know, four years trashing each other in the press, fighting, suing each other, but by this time, a lot of what had happened with Alan Klein was winding down, and the Beatles were ready to officially sign their separation into law. And John and Paul just reconnected as if nothing really happened, laughing and catching up. After the sessions, John invited Paul and Linda to a party, which was full of musicians, when an impromptu jam broke out. Paul got on the drums and John grabbed his guitar, and pretty soon the party was filled with people playing old songs by Little Richard and Elvis. Everyone in the room was aware what they were witnessing, the first musical reunion of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I think a lot of people in that room would have been deeply disappointed to know that it would be their last. John remembered the jam in 1975, saying, quote, There were about 50 people playing, and they were just watching me and Paul, unquote. The jam was actually recorded and released as a bootleg, though it's pretty rough around the edges, as you can imagine. You can also hear the coked-up, drunk John Lennon leading the charge. The recording opens up with John Lennon asking Stevie Wonder if he wanted a snort, and told him that the cocaine was going around. The recording became known as a toot and a snore, and you can actually hear the whole thing on YouTube. The jams were rough, like I said, but they're not as horrible as, you know, they've been described. I think I think it's just pretty cool that the last Lennon McCartney jam was captured uh, on John and May Pang were constantly on again, off again, mainly because John was still so devoted to Yoko, and the two would call each other almost daily. This caused a lot of problems between John and his new girlfriend, May. May would hear him on the phone asking Yoko if he could come home, and she would refuse, saying he wasn't ready, which would set John off on a spiral of partying. 
Apparently, after seeing the state of John's substance abuse and the type of people that John was hanging around with, Paul, ironically, tried to set John and Yoko back up together on his visit in 1974, but it was unsuccessful, and John just kept getting deeper and deeper into the rock and roll lifestyle. By 1974, cocaine had completely overtaken the generation of rock musicians John was a part of, and the music was obviously suffering. But in a haze of marital problems, immigration, business, and artistic uncertainty, John remained drunk and high in his last weekend. By the middle of 1974, John started to feel like he needed to piece his life together. Not with Yoko, though, but with old friends, his son Julian, and his reason for being music. All would not be lost in John's last weekend, and we'll talk more about it next episode. George Harrison's personal life was probably more precarious than John Lennon's. Around 1973, George's drug use and drinking reached new heights, and his marriage to Patty Boyd was suffering because of it. Patty felt completely isolated from her husband, who went from overly devoted Krishna, uh, chanting, praying, and rejecting the material world, to out-of-control rock star, snorting coke, drinking brandy, and having countless affairs. Patty said of her marriage with George during this period, quote, I felt very undermined and unloved, and George was so terribly difficult to talk to. He would either be counting his beads and muttering under his breath all the time, all day long, so if you wanted to talk to him, you didn't know whether you would get an answer in the middle of his chanting or whether he would bite your head off, unquote. By 1973, cocaine was ubiquitous in rock and roll, and pretty much everyone was in denial about how just how dangerous of a drug it was. Patty said about George's cocaine use, quote, Cocaine was different, and I think it froze George's emotions and hardened his heart. He used coke excessively, and I think it changed him, unquote. George became angrier, colder, and pretty much everyone in the circle noticed it. And mixed with his Beatle fame, his new fame as a solo artist really started to get to his head. As we'll talk about in a minute, a lot of his songs during this period are kind of reflecting of a streak of narcissism that wasn't really there in the first two albums. George's appearance was pretty shocking, too. He had always been thin, but cocaine made him skeletal. George's marriage to Patty Boyd, however, was all but over by 1974. At Ringo's New Year's Eve party uh, on the eve of 1974, George told Patty that he thought the two should get divorced that year. Patty was heartbroken by George's constant extramarital affairs. He was cheating on Patty with Ronnie Wood's wife, Chrissy, and most recently he started an affair with Maureen Starkey, the wife of Ringo Starr, George's best friend. Patty had become suspicious of the affair with Maureen when she would come to Friar Park late at night to hear George recording, and she would still be there in the morning. Patty started seeing her dear friend Maureen at Friar Park more and more and felt betrayed. One day at a party, George finally broke the news of the affair to Ringo when he told his friend that he was in love with Maureen in front of both Patty and Maureen. Ringo just walked away saying, quote, nothing is real, nothing is real, unquote. George's affair with Maureen Starkey was the last straw for Patty, who had started to have an affair with George's, one of George's best friends, Eric Clapton. Eric had been madly in love with Patty since the late 1960s and even wrote the song Layla, his biggest song and bell-bottom blues, for Patty, along with messages throughout the album. In 1970, Clapton began writing Patty all of these cryptic love letters dedicated to Layla and his dear Elle, confessing his love to her. At a party in the summer of 1970, Eric and Patty were in the garden alone when George found them together and asked what was going on. 
Eric, who was drunk, responded by saying to George, quote, I have to tell you, man, that I'm in love with your wife, unquote. George was furious, and he immediately asked Patty if she was going to go home with Eric Clapton or stay with George. Patty chose George. Eric was devastated, and the next day he went to Fire Park and told Patty that since she wasn't going to be with him, he was going to start taking heroin. Clapton was true to his word and spent the next three years strung out in his house alone on heroin. By 1973, Eric Clapton had started to clean up, and he began hanging around Friar Park again, and he was preparing to go on tour and record a new album. Clapton immediately sensed that George and Patty's marriage was on the rock, so he picked up right where he left off three years before in 1970 and began courting Patty and trying to steal her away from George once again. Fed up with George's coldness, drug use, and above all, affairs, this time Patty accepted and began an affair with Eric Clapton. In the spring of 1974, Eric Clapton finally convinced Patty to leave George and join him on his first tour since 1970. Patty went to George, who was recording, and said, quote, I told George I was leaving him. It was late at night, and I went into the studio and told him we were leading a ludicrous and hateful life, and I was going to Los Angeles to stay with Jenny and Mick Fleetwood. When he came to bed, I could feel his sadness as he lay beside me. Don't go, he said, unquote. Patty left him the next day and flew to Los Angeles, and a few days later met Eric Clapton on tour. George's reaction to the breakdown of his marriage is sort of hard to describe. Initially, when Clapton started to come back from his life as a junkie, George was a little suspicious about Eric's advances towards Patty, even jealous. One day, George even allegedly challenged Eric Clapton to a guitar duel, in effort to prove some sort of dominance, and the two traded guitar solos. Clapton obviously came out on top, but... After the incident, George started to become a little dismissive and whateverish about Clapton and Patty's relationship. When Clapton and Patty finally got together, Clapton said that George's attitude was, quote, very cavalier. If you want to take her, she's yours, unquote. This was actually a point of conflict between the two, not Eric stealing George's wife, but uh, Eric was always trying to apologize for the situation, and George would always kind of brush it off. George said, quote, I didn't get annoyed with him, and I think that has always annoyed him. I think that deep down inside, he wishes that it really pissed me off, but it didn't. And it made things easier for me, you see, because otherwise we'd have to go through all these big rows and divorces. And you know, she went off to live the same style she had become accustomed to, and it was really very convenient for me." Unquote. While George may have tried to act like none of this mattered to him, and the cocaine and brandy might have helped him to convince himself of that, he certainly didn't act as cool and collected as he tried to seem. He threw himself into a bunch of work. He committed to going on tour starting in the fall of 1974, and he planned to write and record an entire album to support that tour. In between the summer and fall, Harrison worked long hours as a producer for multiple artists, and he even found two months to go to India and worked on the launch of his new company, Dark Horse Records, which was another huge business pursuit. He planned on joining Dark Horse Records after his Apple contract was over in 1976. Naturally, with the increased workload, George also doubled down on his drinking and drug use, essentially living a 24-7 party. He would sleep a few hours, go to dinner with some friends, go to a party, then record into the early morning hours. The lifestyle had a pretty severe impact on his health. He was skinnier than he had ever been and even lost his voice when he was recording his album, making his singing raspy and hoarse. George later remembered his lifestyle in 1974, saying, quote, After I split from Patty, I went on a bit of a bender to make up for all the years I'd been married. I wasn't ready to join AA or anything. I don't think I was that far gone. But I could put back a bottle of brandy occasionally, plus all the other naughty things that fly around. 
I just went on a binge until I got to the point where I had no voice and almost no body at times, unquote. The recording of George's third post-Beatles album, Dark Horse, began in November of 1973, long before its release. And from the start, it was clear that it was going to be a pretty big departure from the spiritually driven living in the material world. For starters, most of the songs were about George's life, not about God or any higher concept. With a few exceptions, George kind of abandoned spirituality on this record. The sessions began with the Christmas theme song, Ding Dong Ding Dong, which a coke-fueled George thought would be a huge Christmas time classic, and the reflective So Sad about a man who lost his love. Then George moved on to recording Harry's On Tour, Express, sort of a theme song for his first tour, which is a pretty great song, actually. Instrumental, good melody, great slide guitar from George. Simply Shady, which is the second song on the album, is a biographical song about George's new life. He sings, came off the rail so crazy, my senses took a dip, and you may think about a lady, cause yourself a minor war, and your life won't be so simple anymore. The song is about a, the binge, really, that George went on after his breakup from Patty, and it's honestly one of my favorite songs, and it features some great guitar playing from George and Robin Ford. The production is, like, loose and trebly. I love Simply Shady. It's just such a great song. George also does a pretty quirky cover of Bye Bye Love by the Everly Brothers, where he replaces a verse with another, more direct, autobiographical reference when he says, There goes our lady, well you know who, I hope she's happy, old clapper too. Another notable song on the album which brings another theme to light is Dark Horse, the title track. The song is an acoustic-driven song with some solid electric piano parts and cool flutes. Lyrically, it's really different from anything George had done because... It's all about how George felt that he was underrated and he was the Beatle who surprisingly had come out on top. George could be talking about his former bandmates or the rock press, but either way, Dark Horse shows us a more egotistical version of George that we hadn't really seen yet. And it's also sort of a message to the haters, which was kind of, you know, new for rock and roll. Dark Horse did okay as a single, hitting number 15 before leaving the charts, giving Harrison a hit, just not a chart topper, and it definitely wasn't a, you know, seminal piece of rock and roll music that would be remembered for decades to come, like My Sweet Lord or Give Me Love. George also recorded the song that he wrote with Ronnie Wood in 1973, Far East Man, and Maya Love, both songs where George plays some really stellar sly guitar, then George recorded the very spiritual Is He Jai Krishna. The album, which was released in December of 1974, was about halfway through George's tour. It's now considered to be a disaster of an album, but it actually didn't get that bad of reviews in 1974. It wasn't glowing, but people sort of thought it had radio potential and liked the funky, soulful elements uh, that were kind of placed all over the album. However, the album wasn't a number one, and it left the charts altogether pretty quickly. And, as we'll talk about in a minute, the album did not do well paired with the bad reviews of the 1974 North American tour. George Harrison and Ravi Shankar's 1974 North America tour was arguably the most widely anticipated solo Beatle event to date. George Harrison had released two number one albums, he had more hits than all of his old supervisors, Paul and John, and he had a hugely successful concert for Bangladesh. And now another first. He was the first Beatle to headline a major U.S. tour. 
and I do mean major. George was playing 45 arena shows, a tour on the scale that only acts like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin were pulling off with any regularity, but in 1974, acts like CSNY had a huge stadium tour and Bob Dylan and the band reunited playing mainly old material, giving fans a sense of rock and roll nostalgia. So they were expecting to see George Harrison in all of his Beatle glory playing songs like Taxman, Something, Here Comes the Sun, and then his hits like What Is Life, My Sweet Lord, Give Me Love. But George was very much not willing to deliver. The potential for this tour was huge. One could easily imagine a double live album and George Harrison being a regular fixture of live rock and roll throughout the 1970s. This tour could have essentially cemented George Harrison as THE ex-Beatle. However, the reality was harsh. This tour would essentially halt his superstardom, and it would completely change the way the rock press talked about George Harrison. From the opening press conference, it was clear that Dark Horse was definitely not going to be what Beatles fans wanted. I mean, this wasn't completely unusual. Paul wasn't playing Beatles songs live, and John famously only played Come Together as his one-off Beatles song when he played live. But George filled the concert for Bangladesh with Beatle hits. In 1974, though, George was harder from his addiction to cocaine and a bit more conceited about his own accomplishments. When asked if this tour was going to be in any way nostalgic about the Beatles' days, George said, quote, The problem comes from when people want to live in the past. When they want to hold on to something, people are afraid of change, unquote. When a reporter followed up and asked about a Beatles reunion, George unleashed, especially at Paul, saying, quote, It's all a fantasy putting the Beatles back together. If we ever do that, it's because everybody is broke. I'd rather have Willie Weeks on bass than Paul McCartney. Having played with other musicians, I don't think the Beatles were that good. Paul's a fine bass player, but he's a bit overpowering at times. I'd join a band with John Lennon any day, but I couldn't join a band with Paul. That's not personal, but from a musical point of view." Unquote. These hateful words about the Beatles just moments before the tour definitely didn't give George much good grace in the eyes of fans or reporters. In addition to questions about the Beatles, other questions about George's life came up. The big elephant in the room was his split from Patty Boyd and Eric Clapton's role in it. George responded to the question by saying, quote, Eric Clapton's been a close friend for years. I'm very happy about it. I'm still very friendly with him. I'd rather she was with him than with some dope. If you get my album, Dark Horse, it's like Peyton Place. I mean, it will tell you exactly what I've been doing, unquote. George's personal life had changed a bit uh, between the end of his marriage and the tour. He'd met his future wife, Olivia Arias, who worked the phones for his new company, Dark Horse Records, in Los Angeles. George would call the office and flirt with Olivia, eventually establishing a rapport with her. He'd never seen her and asked his assistant, Chris O'Dell, to see what she really looked like. One day, George was in L.A. before the tour, where he decided to stop by the Dark Horse office and surprise Olivia. Pretty quickly, the two were inseparable. Drummer Andy Newmark remembered, quote, They went out that night and never parted, unquote. George's band was pretty impressive, much like the core group of musicians who played on Dark Horse. George singing and on guitar, Billy Preston on keyboards, Robin Ford on guitar, Willie Weeks on bass, Jim Horn and Tom Scott on horns, and Andy Newmark and Jim Keltner on drums. The first date of George's 1974 tour of North America was on November 2nd. From the start, shows were not what people were expecting. I mean, George legitimately had, like, no voice. He could barely talk, and he had to sing for 45 shows. People started calling it Dark Horse, H-O-A-R-S-E. 
and Billy Preston had to do a lot of heavy lifting with background vocals. Not only this, but the show was a blend of Indian and rock and roll. There wasn't like an opening act and then George at first. Each act got roughly the same amount of time, and then they do a couple of blended songs. George knew the Indian music would put a lot of people off. He later said, quote, I even wanted the ads to read, don't come if you don't like Indian music. I thought it would give people another kind of experience other than watching Led Zeppelin all their lives, unquote. The shows were attended by many people, including stars like David Bowie, Bob Dylan, Robbie Robertson, even Paul McCartney, who had been pretty hurt by George's comments, showed up to support him. John Lennon agreed to play with George at Madison Square Garden just a few weeks after his appearance with Elton John, which we'll talk about next week, but the two had a massive falling out when John Lennon refused to sign an agreement that would officially dissolve the Beatles on the morning of the show. George Harrison was also invited to the White House to meet the President of the United States, Gerald Ford, upon the urging of the President's son. Now, you can see this whole sort of uh, press clip of George meeting Gerald Ford on YouTube. It's honestly pretty hilarious. My favorite quote is when George tells a reporter that he sees, quote, good vibes from the White House. Musically, the tour was a mixed bag. Some nights were great, and the band had a great time. Others, things were a little flatter, depending on how bad George's voice was. The band played only four Beatles songs, Something, For You Blue, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and surprisingly, a cover of In My Life, John Lennon's tune from Rubber Soul. Though George was really resentful and didn't want to play any Beatles songs, he kind of substantially changed the lyrics and the structure of the songs on stage. He played an upbeat reggae version of Something and changed the lyrics, uh, which were originally about Patty Boyd, to If There's Something in the Way We Move It and find yourself another lover. That's what I did. He changed the words to While My Guitar Gently Smiles, uh, and he played a killer version of In My Life, honestly, with a great lead guitar and strong horn section. He also played his own hits, like Give Me Love, My Sweet Lord, What Is Life, and others, giving a lot of time to uh, surprisingly deep tracks from Living in the Material World, like Who Can See It, and The Lord Loves the One That Loves the Lord. And he also played new ones, like Simply Shady and Maya Love. The audience was far more excited when he dipped into the past, and although the Indian music was cool, it definitely wasn't what people wanted to see. The press gradually decided the concerts were terrible, which wasn't quite the truth, and every day the reviews got worse and worse. George told Ben Fong Torres, who was on the tour with them in 1974, quote, You know, I did not force you or anybody at gunpoint to come see me, and I don't care if nobody comes to see me, if nobody ever buys another record of mine. I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter to me, but I'm going to do what I feel within myself, unquote. George just kept playing and having a good time on stage, as did the band, too. As well as overdoing it completely, Rolling Stone magazine reported that George was snorting, quote, mountains of cocaine, which in addition to destroying his attitude and making him an egomaniac, made his voice so much worse to the point where he had to call off the recording of shows multiple times, essentially canceling a usable concert film. The last show was in December of 1974 in New York, and by then the verdict was that George Harrison had flopped, and flopped badly. And as a result, the album, which was released during the tour, was thrown out completely as a piece of junk. George remembers the reaction to the tour saying, quote, When I got off the plane and back home, I went into the garden and I was so relieved. That was the nearest I got to a nervous breakdown. I couldn't even go into the house. The flack about the tour was terrible. There are always people who don't like something, but on the average, it wasn't a disaster. But the press clippings were unbelievable. 
By the time I got back to England, people were saying, that's it, you're finished, man. It was the worst thing I'd ever done in my life, according to the papers. But really, there were some moments of that show that were fantastic. So all the negativity about that was a bit depressing, unquote. George Harrison's 1974 tour could have put him on the Mount Rushmore of 1970s solo acts. Instead, he would spend the next decade surrounded by less-than-stellar reviews, causing the rock star to go in and out of seclusion, and forever turn his back on the superstardom that he had since the Beatles broke up in 1969. Paul McCartney had been trying to officially sever ties with the Beatles and Apple Corps since 1970. For nearly five years, the Beatles went to war over Apple's management, leading to the Allens Klein's rise and subsequent fall in 1973, Finally, in December of 1974, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, and after a little bit of struggling, John Lennon officially signed the dissolution of the Beatles as a legal partnership. A partnership that officially began when they signed their first record contract in the summer of 1962. In January of 1975, the Beatles were now just a memory. <laughs> 